Welcome to the Desert Life Church podcast. We're so excited you've tuned in to hear our weekend message. From wherever you are listening, we hope you're inspired by this message. How you doing? You doing all right? I just had a week in the Philippines, which was pretty cool, and uh, eating Jollibee. Where's all the Filipinos in the house? Give me a, give me a yell. And uh, inasal chicken. Come on. Chicken adobo. Is it good? And so, uh, yeah, I didn't bring you any back. But, um, yeah, I reckon we should have, like, a Filipino-themed food night. What do you think about that? All, have the, all the Pinoy folks, what do you think? And, of course, it has to accompany rice, like everything that happens in the Philippines. Even prayer is accompanied by rice. It's an amazing, amazing place. So, uh, anyway, so I'm back. It's good to be back and good to see you. Are you all right? Awesome. We're starting a new series in the life of our church in Sunday mornings, and it's not always going to uh, be in parallel on Sunday nights, but it is tonight. And uh, I would highly encourage you, even if you're not a normal podcast subscriber, to either on Spotify or the church website or your favorite podcast app, get uh, Dr. Jacob Koshy's message from this morning, which was excellent introduction to the um, series called The Voice. Who, who has watched The Voice on TV, the reality TV show? Yeah. And, you know, the premise is that the auditions, the, the sort of best part of the show, other than who wins at the end, really is the audition process where all of the judges are lined up in these big high-backed chairs with their back to the stage. Are you with me? Who's seen it? And then they're called blind auditions because what happens is the various aspiring singers or talented people, they walk out onto the stage and the judges aren't, aren't looking at them and the person just begins to do their thing. They begin to sing or they begin to, you know, whatever, play the ukulele. And the judges can only go by what they hear. And that's unique, isn't it? Because oftentimes, like if you watch the other reality performance shows, it's like about how high someone's mohawk is or how big their guns are or, you know, like how, how, how much of a supermodel they look like. It really heavily impacts what the judges are going to think about them. But here, the judges are just listening for something. And what they're listening for is talent. They're listening for that sweet, sweet sound, aren't they? And so their backs are turned. And when the person begins to sing, the judges have a choice. If they hear talent, if they hear something that can go somewhere, if they hear a voice that could really make a difference, what do they do? They turn their chairs around and it's like this massively dramatic moment and it's so tension-filled. Will the judges turn around or not? So we've been thinking about this as a uh, church and we've been thinking, imagine a different thing, imagine a different thing, okay? Imagine you're in the judge's seat, okay? You're in the chair and you've got your back turned, and you're not listening for talent or you're not listening for, you know, uh, someone who can become a superstar, you've been told a whole bunch of auditions are going to happen and you've got to pick who is Jesus. You've got to listen to all the voices. You've got to listen to all the options, all the broadcasts, all the noise that's going to happen. And when you recognise Jesus' voice, that's when you turn your chair around. And do you know what I've found? And one of the reasons we're doing this series is we've been having this dialogue as a leadership team. Actually, some of us would turn for the wrong voices. Some of us would miss that it was Jesus that was speaking and, and, and we'd turn for some other voice that kind of we've been conditioned through our own bias or feelings or prejudice or the culture of this world or the religious traditions we've been broken by. And we would imagine maybe that's what Jesus sounds like. Okay, so that's question one of the series. Here's question two of the series. Different. The rest of the world is in the judge's chair and you're part of the audition and you're told, go out there and sound like Jesus, okay? 
Actually, you're not told that. This is what you're told. This is even worse, really. You're told, just be yourself. Okay? Go and be yourself. And the judges have been told they're not listening for talent this time. They're listening for Jesus. Now, if you were out there being yourself, would the judges turn around and say, I recognize the voice of Jesus there? Isn't that a challenge for us, hey? And what does the world hear when we speak? And so there's this twofold interplay between, first of all, my ability to cut through all noise and understand what does Jesus actually sound like? That's, that's question one. And then question two is, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm told that as he is in this world, so are we, then the challenge for me is, man, does the world recognize Jesus when I have interface with the world? That's a challenge, isn't it? And I'll tell you why this is a challenge for me, because I have the misfortune of being a pastor. And so that means that every small talk conversation starts with, what do you do? And I try to throw them off the scent. I say, grow facial hair. I talk about, well, I've just come back from the Philippines where, no, I wasn't doing missions or anything spiritual. I was doing a week of stick and knife fighting. And you're like, what do you need to do that for? Because I've got three daughters, people. And I grew up with three sisters. I've been stick and knife fighting my whole life. But anyway, that's a whole different story. It's a whole different story. Um, And so then what happens is when people find out that I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian pastor, then they proceed to hold me accountable for every problematic thing they've ever heard or seen or experienced at the hand of so-called followers of Jesus. So you know what I do when I travel? You know, some people are really spiritual when they travel on um, buses or aircraft or stuff like this, and they like are just waiting for that opportunity to witness to someone. I ain't doing that. I'm just waiting for that opportunity to watch the new release movies on the back of the chair so I don't have to have another conversation about why someone so-and-so put this on social media and so-and-so's doing that and so-and-so had an affair and all this sort of stuff. And, and listen, the world has this weird vacuum where it kind of knows what Jesus is supposed to sound like and it kind of knows when Jesus' followers don't sound much like Jesus. Isn't that true? And so what we're doing together as a church is we're just percolating for a few weeks in this idea of the voice. And getting in touch with the voice of Jesus. And first of all, understanding, do we know that voice well? Do we know it well? Now, voices are funny things because did you notice that, you know, you can say something with your voice, but there's something else which is not voice, and that's called inflection. Okay? I'm going to say some things with my voice. I only have one voice. (laughs) I was um, talking to myself recently, as I often do. I think I might have just been praying, and sometimes I, at home especially, I forget that I'm like, you know, not by myself. So I just start having this conversation with God, but I'll only let out the last half of a sentence of like, okay, God, that's what we'll do, or something like that. And then Danielle will be like, what, what? She's getting to that point where she's elderly. You know what that is? Where she thinks she's quietly and subtly asking you something, but she's yelling it for the neighborhood to hear. So she's going, what? What did you say? I said, oh, did I say something? She goes, you said something. And then she said to me the other day, oh, I think you were answering those voices in your head. <laughs> and she's not wrong. So I only have one voice, despite what my wife thinks and publishes on her blog site, livingwithben.com. Um, but they're, they're, there's not just this thing called voice, there's this thing called inflection, okay? My voice, okay? I knew it. It's only three words. I knew it. Not even three words. It's like a pronoun in two words. I knew it. I can say that with a whole bunch of different inflections, can't I? Let's say, that, let's say, I'll just use Danielle because she's used to being picked on and it's either her or her mother that I pay out on in church. So she's here, we'll use you, Danielle. Danielle walks into the room and I say, I knew it. 
Okay? She walks into the room and I say, I knew it. I can look at her with compassion in my eyes and say, I knew it. I knew it, baby. <laughs> See, that in, you can say the same words, but inflection changes, doesn't it? So when we talk about the voice of Jesus and knowing the voice of Jesus, we're not so much talking about what words would Jesus say, but what we're really talking about is what inflection does Jesus say when Jesus uses those words? You know, because Jesus doesn't look at you and go, I knew it, does he? Remember the story of the woman at the well? Actually, Jacob, so many things you preached on this morning wrecked my message for tonight. So basically, I'm going to preach a short message that can be summarized this way. Listen to Jacob's message from this morning. Remember the woman at the well? Basically, Jesus has an I knew it conversation with that woman, but he doesn't do it this way. I knew it. He says, I knew it. Yeah, you're hungry. Yeah, you're a thirsty person. Yeah, you've been, you, you, you've been. There's this funny thing in John's gospel where he does a wordplay on the number seven all through the gospel, right? There's like, the gospel's arranged around seven great signs that John articulates, the seven signs of Jesus. It's arranged around seven conversations or sermons that Jesus preaches. They're kind of merged together. Is it a sermon? Is it a conversation? It's the same thing. And there's seven of them in the gospel. And the number seven is all the way through the gospel. It's even woven into the structure of the paragraphs. And if you'd love to study the Greek, which is just kind of fun, um, then, then you, you can really see this. The seven's all the way through the gospel. And then Jesus goes to Jacob's well and he sits down at this well and a woman comes and she's had five husbands. And the one she's with now is not even her husband. She hasn't even decided to marry the guy anymore. Here's a woman with a history. Here's a woman with a trail. Here's a woman with a tale probably of brokenness because in a patriarchal culture for a woman to have had five husbands can only mean that she has been an object of use and abuse, possibly trade. But for one thing's for sure, she has been exploited for her status as a woman her whole life. And in some ways, and if you know people who've been broken like this, then in some ways, the ways that we've been broken in our past often predict the ways we're going to find comfort in the future. And sure enough, that's the way this lady has lived because she's had these five guys, who knows why, but now she's with someone. They didn't even get married anymore, but they're like they're married. And Jesus cuts to the heart of the issue. See, he already knows this about her when he begins the conversation. And he says, she, you know, she says, um, she says, go and bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. But he doesn't say it with the inflection of condemnation. I knew it. Busted. He says it with a, an inflection of deep love and compassion. That I think you have to know a lot about the culture of the time to understand that it is love and compassion that motivates Jesus. He says, yeah, you've had five. And he says to him, give us a drink. And she says, how can you be a man, a Jewish man, ask me a Samaritan woman? There's a whole world of stuff wrapped up in that. How can you ask me for a drink? And this is when you understand what the accent of Jesus is like. Jesus cuts to the heart of this issue because she's had five husbands and then she's had another man that she's with now. That's six. But when she goes to the well that day, she runs into the seventh man. Understand? And the seventh man, you know, the seven is for the Jewish people significant. It's probably why John does this in his gospel. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of fullness. It's like six is the number of lack. Six is the number of absence, of pain, of chaos. But seven is like everything's complete. Everything's at peace. Everything's found fullness. Seven is awesome. Six is bad. And if you've ever had kids, you know that. <laughs> Just a joke. And so the seventh man says to her that day, he says this, if you really knew who it was you were talking to, you would ask, 
and he would give you living water and you would never go thirsty again. You've got to understand what Jesus is saying there. He's looking at her history as the seventh man. And who knows what her motivations were coming to the well. She probably was thinking in, in, in one way, well, this could be guy number seven. Maybe that's why guy number six never got, never got to the point where they tied the knot. Maybe she's keeping her options open, looking for a better landing pad. And who knows whether in the middle of the day, she sees Jesus on his own at the well and thinks, hmm, she put on some Chanel number five and she swaggers down to the well. Hello, how you doing? She says. Who, who knows? I'm not, that's not what the gospel says. It doesn't give us any indication of her motivations. But you have to understand that in one way, she's lived a six-men kind of life, but she's about to enter into a seventh-man kind of existence. And the way Jesus introduces that to her is by discussing life as a huge metaphor, as a huge picture with her. And the picture is one of thirst. Have you ever been really thirsty? I, I remember a little while ago I was in India and I just did this stupid thing before bed, which was I forgot to make sure I had like bottled water or purified water with me before I went to bed. And so I went to bed and then I woke up after 1am sometime incredibly parched in this 40 degree, two degree land where the air con was working all night and I was just dried out like a crackly old leaf, you know. And I was lying there and I rang the hotel reception and said, hey, could I get some water? And they're like, oh, we'd not, there's no room service at this time of night, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then basically I didn't want to die, so I didn't go out to find water myself. Um, and so I just had to lie there thirsty. And it's like about 1.30 and I'm thinking, okay, things will happen again at about 6am. Can I last five hours? I'm like, I can last five hours, you know. And I tried this thing. I found a little pebble that I had in something, somehow got a hold of and, and um, put it in my mouth like Bear Grylls said. Have you ever done that? Bear Grylls has this thing that when you're in the wilderness trapped and you're thirsty, you put a pebble in your mouth and it stimulates. This is, you didn't know you were going to get this in church, did you? This is survival training, people. I tried that and it didn't work because I was just parched and I was dry. And it was getting to the point of torturousness. And after about two hours of lying there being really thirsty, now I wasn't in dehydration, wasn't hallucinating, didn't have headaches or anything like that. I was just so thirsty. And, I had, and now I couldn't sleep because I was so thirsty, I couldn't sleep. So all I was doing is lying there thinking about water. And what's really annoying is the toilet in the room I was staying, this dodgy hotel, was running. So all I could hear is... Just a little reminder from the universe that I'm thirsty and there's water within reach that will kill me that I can't have. So I actually did something. When it got to about 3.30 a.m., I crumbled. And I made a choice. And here's the choice that I made. Sickness from drinking bad water will be less miserable than this thirst that I am currently faced with. And so I did something, right? It was 3.30. I got a cup and I just filled it up with this much of the tap water. I was in a town called Kolhapur in Maharashtra in India. Jacob knows people from that place. And I got a cup and I filled it up with this much water and I put that water in my mouth and I swizzled it around and I'm not going to lie, I knew that water was bad water and that every travel guide and every piece of medical advice says don't drink that water, but I was thirsty. <laughs> and so I swizzled it around in my mouth and I thought I'll just swizzle it around in my mouth and spit it back into the bowl and I did that and I spat it back into the bowl but like the back of my throat and like down here was still dry but my mouth was now pleasantly hydrated. But all that pleasant hydration did is tempt me to go further. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I filled up the glass with this much water again and I swizzled around in my mouth and I swallowed it. And I waited 10 minutes to see if like the dreaded plague would take my life. I waited to see if I would suddenly die, break out in a sweat, get a fever, if my colon would suddenly expand and explode, something like that. None of that happened. And so then I filled up the glass halfway about probably only 10 or 15 minutes later. And at this time, 
have you ever been there? Have you ever just been in one of those stupid situations where your poor planning or whatever it is has, has um, meant that your human needs eclipse the available resources at hand? So now you'll do anything to try to fix that, right? So this is me. So I drank half a glass of water and I was feeling good, but it just wasn't enough. You know, they say if you drink until you're not thirsty anymore, then you still need to have a bit more drinks. Okay. And so I did that. And then I realized after about 40 minutes of experimentation, what could go wrong? I feel fine. Right. And so I just guzzled that tap water. Anyway, in the mercies of God, the thing is I didn't get sick. And the rest of that trip, I just drank tap water the rest of that trip, and I still never got sick, which is apparently a big no-no, and don't go and do what I did and say, well, Pastor Ben said it's fine to go to you know, developing nations and drink the water from the tap, because you're not supposed to do it. So I don't know what happened with that, but here's the thing, right? If I did get sick, you're going to say to me, Ben, you've got no one to blame but... Okay, the warnings were all there. Okay. You say, Ben, you know what you should have done? You should have pre-planned. You should have made sure that you did the research and found out where the available uh, you know, sanitary water sources were and made sure that you catered for your needs in the appropriate way and made sure that you had enough water on hand to... to you know what I'm saying? Who would have said that? Just take your names. Okay. And you'd be forgiven and you'd be understood. It's understandable that you would take that approach. And that's certainly what I'd say to one of my kids if they were telling me the same story. Right. So I was fortunate because I escaped without any major illness that time. But imagine if I formulated a different idea. Hey, nothing bad happened. And imagine if everywhere I travelled in the developing world, and there are some places where the water that comes out of the tap is way worse than places like Kolapur. And imagine if I just went, well... It served me well that time. But do you know that many humans, we live our lives with a deep-seated thirst, not a metaphor anymore, a deep-seated thirst. And what we do is we experiment with things that probably aren't good for us, but we're just in need and we're desperate and we've got this parchness and, and it comes to the point, maybe the available resources aren't there. Maybe no one's taking our call. Maybe we feel like we've tried and we've failed, but whatever it is. And so we do, we just think, oh, I'll just have a mouthful of that stuff that everybody told me not to have. Have you ever been there? So we do have a mouthful and then we wait and maybe something really bad happens, but maybe nothing bad happens and it becomes a lifestyle habit. And that's probably the situation that this lady is in. This lady, Jesus looks at her and he doesn't see a label. He doesn't see a Samaritan. He doesn't see an adulteress. He sees a human being stripped back to the core of their essence. And here's what the core is, a thirsty person, very thirsty, trying to quench their thirsts in all sorts of ways. And Jesus cuts straight to the heart of that woman's issue and addresses her as what she actually is, not as all the social labels that she's accumulated. Lady, you're thirsty. But this is what blows me away about the inflection of Jesus. Because you could look through all the Old Testament law that the Samaritans also pertain to believe in and find a thousand references that that lady should not have been living the way she lived. You can look through all the Old Testament law and find the punishments and the prescriptions and the descriptions of everything she did wrong and Jesus would have had every right to take on the guise of a prophet or a priest and rebuke her and correct her. And this is what amazes me about the inflection of Jesus because he corrects her but he doesn't do it in a way we've ever seen people be corrected before. He says this, if you really knew who you were talking to, you would ask for the water you really need and he would give it to you and you would never go thirsty. Again, think about that. 
That's Jesus disclosing what God is actually like to us. That's Jesus disclosing what Jesus is actually like to us. And this is the nub of the issue. If you really knew who Jesus was, it's him you'd go to to quench your thirst. And you would never go to these other fallen sources ever again. Like me. If I had, like, you know... um, Evian water soaked in the tears of a Tibetan yak from the highlands of the Himalayas or something like that. There's no way I would have got up and drunk the tap water. But I drank the tap water because I didn't have access to anything else. So I was just floundering, panicking, and desperate to to fix my need. It was like one of those Band-Aid solutions. Are you with me? And we live our lives like that as humans many, many times. And then sometimes our Band-Aid solutions become a barrier between us and God. Because, hang on, I know what God's going to say to me. I already know what the Bible says about my wrongdoing. I already know what the Bible says about my sin and my lifestyle choices. And we're just waiting for Jesus to come and pound us for it. But Jesus doesn't do it that way. When you read the Jesus of the Gospels, he offers thirsty people water that will quench their thirst so they won't need to drink from those broken water sources anymore. That's the inflection that Jesus speaks with. Now, I'm challenged about this because one of the things that challenges me as a Christian leader is, man, when I speak to the world, does the world hear that inflection of Jesus from me? I was engaged in a conversation with a few other Christian leaders recently, and we were talking about just the stuff that's going on in our nation and prominent football players and their social media posts and all sorts of stuff. And this conversation came around, and they said, well, what do you think your job is? And one guy goes, well, my job is just to declare the unpolluted word of God, and the world can just deal with it as they want. They've just got to make sure they get it. I said, that's funny because I don't think Jesus took that posture when he came. Jesus didn't give us God's word, a human's broken way. Jesus gave us God's word, a divinely loving way. So much so that when John describes him, he says the word became flesh. Everything that God wanted for us, the divine logos, the software that says and captures the essence of who God is. That is Jesus, that Jesus was the divine logos and he became flesh. So that when we look at Jesus, we're not just looking at a teacher or a prophet or a great man, although we are looking at all those things, but we're not just looking at those things. What we're actually looking at is this is exactly what God is like. Nothing more, but nothing less. And a lot of times we struggle with that, you know. As people of faith, I still think we have a schizophrenic faith where we imagine that God is a little bit like, um, you know, Saruman from uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, the angry wizard with the white beard, (laughs) waiting to smite us. And then there's gentle Jesus who's like, oh, angry God's mad at me, so I better go to gentle Jesus because Jesus is Mr. Nice Guy and he'll pacify that angry God for me. And then the Holy Spirit somewhere in between like a battered housewife going back and forth. I say that not as a joke because I've spent hours and hours talking to people about the way they process what their view of God is and you often find that people have an incredibly skewed view of God. And it's no wonder because we usually, rather than being humans made in God's image and discovering what that image is and living it out, what we do is we live according to our own whims and desires and fancies and then we create a God like that, which is God made in our image. And then God is a lot like us and let me tell you, if God was like me, you don't want that God. You don't need that God. But that's okay, I don't feel bad, because if God was like you, I don't want that God either. And Jesus says, take a good look at me, guys. God is exactly like this. That's what the religious people hated about Jesus. Because when they saw Jesus, they didn't see the type of God they want. They saw the type of God that would turn people away from the temple. They saw the type of God that would have stoned that woman at the well, like they would have stoned that woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. 
You understand? They wanted that type of God because that's the type of God that fitted their categories. And Jesus spoke with an, with an accent and an inflection that was unrecognisable to people who believed that that's who God is. Unrecognisable. That's why John says in John chapter 1, he came to the world, but they did not receive him as their own. They couldn't understand him. And yet, John says, the word became flesh. And then he says, and we beheld it. We beheld him, the one and only begotten son of God. And then he says this amazing phrase, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You know, full means can't fit another thing in. Think about how you feel after you've eaten on Christmas Day. Can't fit another thing in. And John says, if you had to look at Jesus, he's, he can't fit anything else in but that grace and that truth. And, and so I'm having this chat with these Christian leaders, and they're all about truth and declaring the truth and declaring the truth and declaring the truth. And as they say it, they've got this frown on their faces, and the veins are popping out on their forehead, and they just know that every sinner needs to know they're going to hell. And I was, I was like, hang on. But you don't see that inflection when you look in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. You don't see that inflection. And they've mixed up the information and the accent because Jesus' accent is gracious. Jesus' accent can tell you that you're headed for calamity without doing like this. You're headed for calamity! He can say, you're headed for calamity. And it's a completely different accent, isn't it? So the question for us is, do we understand the accent that Jesus speaks with as the people of God? And I think for many of us, actually the failure to understand the accent of Jesus becomes an impediment in our relationship to God. And why I know this is because I have so many conversations with people that could be solved if they would just engage with Jesus on an issue. I'm going to give you some examples, all right? For me, a relationship with God presupposes the moment-by-moment moment and daily interface with Jesus Christ. Moment-by-moment moment and daily interface with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, that means that when I've got big decisions to make, I'm hearing from Jesus about those decisions, doesn't it? And many people aren't hearing from Jesus about their decisions because they're not cultivating a relationship where they are able to recognize the accent of Jesus. And when you can't hear from Jesus, you're not hearing from God because Jesus is the way that God has chosen to reveal his face to us. So when you can't do that, you are left to your own devices to work out what you're supposed to do with decisions, with how you handle things, with where you're going in life, with what you're going to do about something, an ethical question, a moral question. And so do you know what most people do? Most people, rather than go to Jesus for direction, they turn to the interpretation of their circumstances. They turn to the interpretation of their circumstances. And I've had this conversation so many times with people in Alice Springs that I think it's something in the atmosphere of our town, but it's a weakness in the body of Christ. I'm going to give you some examples, okay? Um... What are my examples? When we look to our circumstances, instead of going to Jesus to hear a word from him, okay? I like our circumstances are the things that speak to us. I'm going to give you some examples, all right? Um, here's the worst one. When I was a new Christian, I had a motorbike accident, okay? And I really injured my back and I really injured one of my legs. And many mature Christians around me said... Well, do you think God's trying to tell you something about that motorbike? <laughs> right? Now, I want you to think about that because the truth is we are all in danger of saying stupid things about the voice of God that doesn't reflect the accent of Jesus when we talk to other people. And it might not be a big issue to you, but there's a world out there who would refuse to follow Jesus, not because of the accent Jesus has, but because of the accent he is represented yep. with 
by the world. And that's our challenge. Understanding him as he is and then reflecting him as he is, not understanding him as we think he might be and then reflecting him as we are. And we're masters at projecting our voice onto Jesus. We've all heard the story of like the adolescent awkward guy that sees a really hot chick and says, God told me you're going to be my wife. And she says, that's funny because everything's telling me I ain't coming near you, buddy, right? And he won't take no for an answer, so he ends up becoming a stalker or something really weird because he has confused his hormones with the voice of God. Why? Because to him, his hormones are the voice of God. They direct his paths. And it's not just a male problem. It can be a female problem too. Do you understand what I'm saying? But actually, that's a hyperbolic example of what we routinely do. We have feelings, we have impressions, and we interpret things. And we never ask ourselves, is that really with the accent of Jesus or is that just me and my natural state? Because it's far more comfortable to project my natural state onto Jesus. My granddad was an amazing man of God, probably one of the reasons I'm still here. He died when he was 92, looking through his iPad, reading the Word of God. Pretty cool. He was such a cool old dude. But one of the things that I learned from him was even an amazing man of God, he used to think drums were evil. So he couldn't abide that any church would have worship with drums in it. And he couldn't abide that any like worshippers, any Christian worship would use drums. And he was just convinced that drums were evil. In spite of Psalm 150 that I pointed out to him many times, it talks about the whole percussion section worshipping God. <laughs> but what? Because for him, he just didn't like drums. They were like modern and new. And he was an amazing man of God. And he really performed amazing miracles and all sorts of stuff at the hand of Jesus. But even he made the mistake of projecting his own desires onto the person of God. And it actually taught me something because he's probably one of the Christians I've looked up to most my entire Christian walk. But he opened my eyes. You know what? We are all in danger of projecting our personality onto Jesus. And then the things we don't like, wow, coincidentally, God doesn't like them evil either. But then the people we don't like, coincidentally, God doesn't like them either. You understand? It's a game we all play, my friends. And the only antidote to that game is to always critique how I'm feeling and thinking against the inflection and accent of Jesus. Not just what would Jesus say, how would Jesus say what Jesus would say? There's a world of information in the Gospels. And if you read through all the Gospel parables and stories about Jesus, the parables he said, the actions, read all of his conflicts, because almost all of his conflicts were not with what he said, but how he said it. The Pharisees and the religious people did not like the version of God Jesus claimed to embody. They could handle the rules, the regulations. They could handle him saying, love your neighbor, all that sort of stuff. They couldn't handle him being loving, gracious, and forgiving, full of grace and truth. Okay, so um, these people are saying to me, oh, you know, do you think God's trying to tell you something about that motorbike, right? And I said, and I just don't know where it came from because it's very thick as I still often am accused of being by my wife. <laughs> um, and, and, and I said to him, wow, so, so let me get this straight. You're saying to me that God loves me so much whose son shed his precious blood for me and that God has filled me with the Holy Spirit so that I can receive direction and have a relationship and interface with him. But because God doesn't want me to have my motorbike anymore, rather than tell me about that, he's just going to knock me off my motorbike. Is that what you're telling me the loving God of the universe would do? But you know, many of us, we live that way. Many of us live that way. I'm a pastor. You wouldn't believe the conversations I have. And please don't let this like, discourage you from having conversations with me. I love having conversations with people. But so many of the conversations I have start with somebody bringing to me their circumstance set. 
and interpreting their circumstances. This is what God must be saying because look what's happening to me. Okay? And the problem is if you, you know, all interpretation is in the eye of the beholder. Have you seen a court case? Have you seen, you know, um, historical narratives where, where you can interpret the same set of actions about seven different ways or what witnesses say, can't you? Isn't that true? And why is that? Because interpretation is in the eye of the beholder. So you could interpret your circumstances like God is rebuking you and crushing you and judging you and wants you to go in a certain direction. But I could interpret your circumstances a completely different way, you know. And three other people in, this, in the conversation could also interpret your circumstances a different way. So circumstances are not a good vehicle for the voice of God. They're not. And that's why Paul said to the Ephesians, hey, guys, don't be like the pagans, man. And what did he mean by that word pagan? Well, the pagans and that particular word is a technical word for the behavior where when they wanted to know the mind of the gods for the future, they would slaughter a sheep and then examine its entrails. And they would look out and see, is there a black crow coming? Oh, yeah, there's a black crow coming. Okay, that's it. Oh, there's a black cat that walked across our path. Okay, the one way you can interpret your circumstances is with cats. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. And they would look at the circumstances, looking for omens, and interpret that the gods of the heavens and the universe, they are speaking to us by these circumstances. And Paul says, that, that's a pagan thing. Okay? So what we've been given is we've been given a word of God in the scriptures. And we've been given gospels that portray for us the accent and the inflection of Jesus Christ. And then that, the job of those scriptures is to articulate the personality of Jesus which redefines for us, if you understand the history of God think, which redefines for us who God really is. And we're forced, like Jesus did with his disciples, to go back over everything we ever knew about God, which is what Jesus did with his disciples. He took them all the way through the Old Testament and opened their eyes to what it really said about God, because up till that point, no one clearly understood God from reading the Old Testament. They had to go, Jesus, understand him, now look back. And that is what makes the Christian faith the Christian faith instead of the Jewish faith or the Islamic faith is because Jesus is the interpretive cornerstone of everything we believe about God. And you really can't understand that without that major foundational idea, what you have is not Christianity. It might just be something that resembles the Christian religion that's actually this thing called folk religion. It's possible to have Christian witchcraft that's not Jesus-centric, but just a set of beliefs. And, you know, if I do these things called prayers, which are really like uttering magic spells, then God is obligated to do the things I want him to do. You understand? Christian witchcraft. It's possible to have that. And Jesus is the cornerstone and interpretive key of everything that we believe. So the question is, do I actually understand the accent and the inflection of Jesus? And have I let it permeate who I am? So the, the job of the Gospels particularly and the New Testament is to describe Jesus and show Jesus to us so that we would come to Jesus and absorb him into our lives, turn our lives over to him, make him our king, enter the kingdom of God, be born again, have a fresh start, now walk with Jesus as a Jesus-centered being. And then in response to that, Jesus says, okay, if you do that, then I will send my Holy Spirit, which by the way is me, but it's me everywhere, not just me confined to time and place. And I will send my Holy Spirit into you. And then the New Testament teaches all these wonderful things about what the Holy Spirit does. But the idea that Jesus first gave the hint to his disciples is found in John chapter 16, where Jesus says, look, guys, I'm going away. And they're all panic stricken about that. But what's going to happen if you go away? He says, don't worry. It's for your good that if I go away, if I go, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them a whole set of teachings about the Holy Spirit. But this is the, the center point of what he says. And he will take of what is mine 
and give it to you. You understand that? It's the, the, the primary thing about the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, spiritual gifts. Yes, healing. Yes, miracles, all that sort of stuff. But all those things come on the back of the crucial centerpiece that the Holy Spirit takes Jesus and makes Jesus internal to us. Make sense? So that now the accent I read in the Gospels lives in me. The person I see in the stories of Scripture lives in me. And so now I have interface and relationship with God that looks like Jesus made real by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So my job is to be trained by God's Word to recognise who Jesus is. To respond in worship and prayer to who Jesus is and receive the Holy Spirit. And it's not just a once-off thing, it's like a constant thing. It's like the constant job of Christians to worship God, receive the Spirit, pray, receive the Spirit. Why? Because I need to have a constant, fresh relationship with the Holy Spirit. You know, if I just move overseas for the next 10 years and never talk to Danielle ever again, she rings me and goes, what's your problem? I say, but Dal, I told you on our wedding day I loved you. I told you I'd love you forever. Yeah, but have you told me today? A relationship is ongoing. A transaction is a one-time thing. And too many of us have a transactional faith. Oh yeah, one time I got filled with the Spirit. That one time I spoke in tongues. Oh, that one time I experienced God. Oh, that one time I got saved. And if we live transactional one-time faith, then what happens is over time, we barely even recognize the accent of Jesus anymore. And our faith cools and the love of God is barely able to come to us. And then if it can't come to us, man, it can't come through us to a world that needs that stuff. And then what we're left with is a shell of Christianity where we have all the rules and regulations and doctrinal religious beliefs, but none of the power of it, which Paul said, form of godliness, but denying its power. And then we go out to that world and we're empty and thirsty. And then the world sees that we're empty and thirsty and says, I don't want what you got, man. I don't want to have what you're having. <laughs> Why? Because we don't recognize the accent of Jesus. So let me give you some tips about understanding the accent of Jesus. I pretty much have to stop, but I want to do a couple of things before I stop. The first one, we learn to recognize the accent of Jesus primarily through the internalization of the Word of God. Study the Scriptures, take it to heart. If you're new at this, just start at the Gospels and read them over and over again until you know Jesus backwards so that you recognize Jesus when he interfaces you with you by the Holy Spirit. Imagine if, um, if before I married Danielle, somebody arranged a relationship between us. This happens in parts of the world. And we only corresponded for two years by writing each other letters. Remember the days when people would write on paper and pen letters to each other? That happened. Imagine if we did that for two years, right? And over those two years, I would begin to get a feel for Danielle's personality by the way she writes what she writes and by the way she says what she says. And then imagine that I'd never seen her. There was no pictures or anything. All we had is written correspondence. But then imagine I go to a room of people and they say, okay, we're going to play a game, Ben. You're going to do speed dating with everybody in the room. Now, here's the truth of the matter. If Danielle was being herself when she wrote to me, it wouldn't take me long to go through the whole room to realize I know who the one who wrote to me was. You understand? Written correspondence in the form of self-disclosure reveals yourself to somebody. And so what would happen if you predicted forward is that I'd talk to everyone in the room and find them all nice, but the one who I was corresponding with, the, with for the last couple of years, because I've read every word and absorbed every word, I'd recognize that person. I would recognize that person. And we'd have that and I'd pick you out. Now I know who you are. Understand? And so the Word of God's job is for us to train ourselves to recognize the voice of God. 
because Jesus never moves or speaks or says anything in contradiction to God's Word. It's the primary framework by which we understand Him. So internalize it. And why internalize it? I internalize it so I have a good way of knowing, is that really the voice of Jesus or not? And not enough of us have that, my friends. Our feelings, our biases, our pains, our prejudices, religious, tradition, all these things sometimes are much louder to us than the real voice of Jesus. And it's okay, it's not a criticism, but what we have to do is we have to retrain ourselves. That's what discipleship is actually. Retraining myself away from all that stuff so that I know what Jesus sounds like. Make sense? So study the Word of God. The second thing is this. Um, Resist the urge to find the voice of Jesus in your circumstances. Okay. Now, I'll tell you what you should do instead. Instead of letting your circumstances interpret the voice of Jesus, go to Jesus and let the voice of Jesus interpret your circumstances. Because actually sometimes he uses them to speak to you, but he's not like throwing you the Rubik's Cube of life and going, good luck working it out, sucker. Go to Jesus. This is what I've found constantly in my life, is that Jesus has always pre-warned me about major things in life pre-warned me of circumstantial changes so that when those circumstantial changes happen, I understand the correct way to interpret them. God spoke to us about coming to Alice Springs. Spoke to me, actually. Danielle hadn't heard from God yet. She has by now, but she hadn't then. God spoke to me five years before this church ever knew they were going to need to start looking for another pastor. He said to me, Keith Ainge, just the previous pastor, wonderful man of God, Pastor Keith is going to retire at 65 and you're going to be the next pastor of Alice Springs. And I was like, whoa, because I'd just taken on a big role in a campus in Brisbane. I promised them I'd stay for like 10 more years. And they said, if we give you this role, will you stay 10 more years? I'm like, for sure, I'll stay 10 more years. I was only like five years into that. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a promise breaker. So I did the smart thing, nothing. Okay, God, if that's what you're saying, that's fine. Fast forward five years. In that five years, I was certain it was the voice of God. So certain it was the voice of God, I did nothing about it. Didn't talk to Daniel, didn't do anything. I just thought, okay, God, that's such a crazy, weird thing. And you don't get on seek.com like Alice Springs Church is looking for pastors. And even if they were, as if they choose me. <laughs> so, um, so then a few years later, five years later, my boss, Pastor Wayne Alcorn, comes into an executive team meeting in our church in Brisbane and says, hey guys, I need your prayer on something. I know this is God, but I can't work it out. I got a call from, I had dinner with Keith Ainge last night. And he's going to retire from Alice Springs. And the church has had a history of lengthy times where they haven't had a pastor. And them and the eldership have been praying and they want a partnership between our two churches. And they feel that the next leader for the church is in our team now. And Pastor Wayne says, I think that's God. But who the heck wants to go to Alice Springs? I let him sit for a couple of months before I, uh, you know, before I went and said, actually, God spoke to me about that five years ago. See, I could have never listened to God and just let the opportunity come up. Is God telling me I should go to Alice Springs? They're looking for a pastor. And there's all that anxiety, isn't there, when you're trying to work out what to do. But I tell you what, if we recognise the voice of Jesus and cultivate an intimate relationship with Him, you're much better off being able to make decisions where you say, I know the mind of God on this. Our team will tell you, if, if they were able to be honest with you, they might feel like they won't, wouldn't talk about me behind my back, hopefully. Um, they, they would tell you the amount of times I say, I don't know, I can't answer that question. I just need to pray about that. Because so many times I just need to find the grace of God in the voice of Jesus around a situation, a circumstance, a question, an opportunity. And, uh, you know, that only comes if we cultivate an intimate relationship with Jesus. So resist the urge to let your circumstances tell you. You know, someone recently, oh, I feel like God's telling me to quit my job. What did God say? Well, it's just that this person's mad at me and that person's mad at me. And then I got performance managed from the boss. 
See what happened? Oh, my circumstances have become the voice of God. What if God was saying, grow up? What if God was saying, have more integrity? What if God was saying, well, do the job you're paid to do then, you understand? And then people like that, they go from job to job to job. And then every time someone at work has an issue with them, they change jobs because God showed me that's a closed door. What if God's showing you that's a closed mind? And some of us, we, we, we do that too much. We live our whole lives letting our circumstances dictate to us what we should do next. Hey, don't, I'm not going mad at you. I'm trying to save you pain. Because here's the truth. When God wants to teach us major character issues, He will take us around and around the mountain until we learn. That can take 10 years or that can take five years. And it's really going to be, am I pliable in the hand of God? So here's the choice I've made. And I'm not telling you this as someone superior or spiritual. I'm telling you as someone who's very thick and made a lot of mistakes and just learned God is old and patient and wise. He will let me bang my face into the same wall a million times until I humble myself and say, okay, God, Jesus, what are you saying to me? Understand? It's much better to let the voice of Jesus interpret your circumstances, my friend. So resist that urge. Here's the fourth one. Open your life in accountability and transparency. One of the ways Jesus' voice speaks to us is when we are open with mature believers. Listen to this. Mature believers who don't have any other agenda for our life than us growing in Christ. Okay? Open my life in transparency to them. Talk to them about my struggles and my issues and help them. And allow them to help me discern the future by speaking with grace and truth into my life. Okay? That's transparency. That's what we're called to do as the people of God. There's a world of teaching in Ephesians chapter 4 on that. Okay. Let me give you three quick things that the voice of Jesus is constantly seeking to do, but always with the inflection of grace. Never hear it without the inflection of grace. The first one is he's always trying to realign my perceptions of reality around his definitions of what reality is. The second one, he's always critiquing the world's lies and false representations by offering me the genuine article. Remember the woman at the well? If you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't be drinking from there. You'd be coming to me. I'll give you the real stuff and you'll never go thirsty again. He's always offering me that. It's a gracious offer. It's not a condemnation offer. He's not stomping his feet. He's not yelling at me with his veins popping out of his forehead. And here's the third thing. When you're seeking the face of Jesus on something, always remember you're seeking the face of the wisest, kindest, best big brother anyone could ever have. We don't have time to unpack this, but in the story of the prodigal son, remember the big brother who was crotchety because the younger brother was getting the party? One of the things about that in the culture of the day was if a, if a younger brother misbehaved, it was always the job of the older father, of the older brother to sort him out. But what you see in the story of the prodigal son is the father sorts the son out by loving and accepting him and the older brother doesn't want anything to do with him. And then the father goes and restores the lost son but he leaves the party and he also tries to restore the older brother. And what's amazing about that story is Jesus comes to us, as the author of the Hebrew says, as our older brother in the faith. And Jesus comes as the brother, not that's angry with us and won't come to our party, but is that restoring brother. The brother that represents the father. And if Jesus was the big brother in the story of the prodigal son, it wouldn't have been the father that ran out and kissed the brother. It would have been the older brother that ran out and kissed him and brought him back to the father and said, Dad, I found your son that's dead, but now he's alive. And that's part of the trick of the story that Jesus tells is, is 
the big brother's got it wrong. He's got his role wrong. And Jesus can do that because he got his role correct as the best, wisest, kindest big brother that you've ever had. Yes, God. Yes, Lord. Yes, Master. But big brother in the faith, restoring us to the Father that we're lost from as well. That's the accent of Jesus. It's the accent of embrace. It's the accent of gracious transformation. It's the accent of I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the transforming voice that says that. Why don't you stand on your feet? Okay. I'm going to finish. Here's a question for you. When was the last time you were filled with the Holy Spirit and just absorbed the presence of Jesus? I I really think, particularly in this service, many of us spectate when it comes to worship. And many of us spectate when it comes to other stuff. And maybe it's because some of us are new in the faith or maybe some are still making decisions, where am I at faith? But I think a lot of it is a lot of us just don't quite understand who Jesus is. And because we don't quite get Jesus, there's a bit of standoffish, so we don't lose ourselves in worship. And we're not overly enthused in prayer. But one of the reasons why we're not like that is because there's this standoffishness when it comes to Jesus. So I'm going to close the service, but before I close the service, here's what I want to do. I want to offer to pray for anybody that says, you know what? I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. I need to be refreshed in the Holy Spirit. Some of us, it might be the first time in our lives and we've never understood what it was like to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the first place, which is simply Jesus moving in and marinating us in himself. Really, that's what it is. And I think it's been too long for some of us and our faith is dry and rational and we're angry and we're making poor choices or we're passive And you'd never think we're angry or anything because we're just passive about it. But you know, when Jesus moves in and marinates us, that changes us. And we no longer wrestle with certain problems because Jesus overcomes them in us. We no longer feel distant from God because God is near us. We can hear that voice. We can recognize that voice. And then we can be used by God to speak to others. And they will hear the right accent. So here's what we're going to do. The band are going to sing. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I want you to come out the front and stand here. Then we together are going to pray for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And I'll tell you now, I'm not expecting you to feel pressured like you have to swing from the chandeliers or do triple backflips. Although if the Holy Spirit moves you to do that, you go for it. We're not going to be mad at you too. Right? All I want you to do is to leave here with an inner sense and conviction. The deepest thirst of my heart are quenched because Jesus lives in me. And we can all have that if we come to Him and say, Jesus, move in. That's what, come Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is really this. Jesus, move in, move in. So we're going to sing this song once. Come and stand down here. Fill this area if you want to receive the fresh touch and power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray, then we're going to go eat soup. So come on down. Even when I can feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I can see it, you're working.
Hey, we've got a couple of people down the front. I'm just going to ask some of our leadership team. Just say, let's have everybody with someone standing with them. You know, asking Jesus to fill you up and move into your life, it's always the right answer, isn't it? Always the right answer. Let's just pray. If you're in the seated area, maybe you want to do two things. Maybe from where you are, you want to say, yeah, Jesus, fill me up and touch my life. And the other thing you could do is stretch your hand towards these guys down the front and uh, join our faith together in this room and believe that Jesus does what He says He does, which is when we come to Him, He sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. So King Jesus, we thank You that You are moving in hearts and minds and lives tonight. And for everybody hungry for Your presence, for everybody needing a touch for the first time or just a fresh sense of you in them we ask holy spirit come and move in right now in jesus name thank you that you are touching people thank you that you are filling people up with your spirit thank you you are making jesus move in right now in jesus name lord we thank you for the grace of god holy spirit thank you that you're moving right now thank you that you're filling thank you that you're filling with power thank you that you're filling with grace thank you that you're making yourself known that you're making jesus real in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Lord. We thank you right now. Jesus, you're restoring. You're moving in love and grace. You're moving in acceptance. You're moving in transformation. You're moving in freedom. Holy Spirit, you're moving in liberty right now. In Jesus' name, you're filling people up. You're touching lives. Come on, even if you're in the seated area, why don't you just just begin to say, God, fill me too. Let me leave full of faith, full of grace, full of the truth of God, full of the Holy Spirit of God, filled with your power, Lord. Maybe some of us, we've been thirsty and quenching our thirst in the wrong places and it's time to say, hey, Jesus, let me drink again of that living water in Jesus' name. We thank you tonight, Father. You're filling people up. Thank you. You're quenching thirst with Jesus, with yourself. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are pouring your living water out into people's hearts and minds. You're soaking our souls. Fill us, Lord. Fill us. Lord, help us be people that speak and live with the accent of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 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 We're going to let these guys out the front continue to receive prayer. But let's fill this place with this song one more time before we go. Thank you for joining us in the podcast. For more information about Desert Life Church, go to desertlifechurch.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day and remember, you belong here.